You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we work our way through Paul's argument in chapter 3, Father, we look to you and we pray, O Father, recognizing that This is what Paul has written down. This, in one sense, is indeed Paul's argument. But he did so as he was inspired by you, O God. Father, it is our desire to learn what you intended to teach us through this passage, Father. And as we sort out what is some of the more difficult parts, O Father, especially next week and following, Lord, we ask for your grace and we pray, Father, that you would teach us would you, you would open our minds, O oh Lord, to take in these great truths and that, Father, we wouldn't just learn for curiosity's sake. But Father, we would learn so that our hearts and minds can be in greater alignment with, with you, O oh Lord, and what you're doing and the purpose of the things you've done, how they fall into place, O oh Lord, that our faith may be strengthened and our devotion to you may be increased and that, Father, we may find ourselves Uh, with a greater anticipation to worship you and to look for the new heavens and the new earth where we'll dwell with you in all eternity. Father, to these ends we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think it would be wise for us to back up to verse 13 uh, as we start to plow through some of these, these verses. And as I indicated in my prayer, some of this stuff's not real easy. In fact, with got some folks, you know, at the park, and some of them are really, really bright folks, and they've been reading through some of these verses, and they've come to me, and they've been like, man, what is, what, what is all that about? And I'm like, it's not easy, is it? They're like, no, um, it's not easy. And uh, Paul in Galatians 3 really begins to come to the heart of his argument here. And I think if we back up to verse 13, to some, some truths that we looked at last week, here we see Paul puts the, the, just the wonder of what Jesus has done for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? By becoming a curse for us. And of course, the curse, what is the curse all about? The curse is, is what is deserved as we commit crimes against the Lord. You know, And I like to use the word crimes. I, I, I get that from that famous hymn, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? Especially the line that says, was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. You know, was it for crimes? These are, it is a criminal activity to sin against God. 
This morning as I was riding down to the park to do the devotion, I was thinking to myself about this and thinking about the curse of the law and thinking about uh, these infractions. You know, I was just praying to the Lord as I was driving, and I just said to to, to the Lord, where is thankfulness and appreciation for what you've done for us when we're sinning against you? Where is that? You know, and probably many of you have had these same kind of thoughts when you're reflecting on these kinds of things. Um, where is it, you know, when, when, that, when that happens? And here, I mean, when we think about these things, it puts a weight on us, doesn't it? I mean, it, you, can, you can feel the weight of that. And then you come to these great truths that you have there in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. And then Paul says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And, you know, and, and it's a reminder here. Uh, Paul is leaning very heavily, very uh, heavily, not heavenly. I guess heavenly would work too, but very heavily on the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, if you will, especially starting on verse 6 and following. And he's doing so there again. Uh, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And in verse 14, he says, so that in Christ Jesus... The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, what has Paul been arguing throughout this entire letter? He's been arguing that our justification is by faith, right? Uh, I've said this so many times, and I keep repeating it, and you can't preach through all these verses without repeating yourself over and over again, because Paul is repeating himself over and over again. Now, why would he need to do that? Because we're wired in such a way where we want to try to earn our justification. That is, in our fallenness, that is what we continually want to try to do. So we're hearing this over and over again, and in these verses, Paul is actually putting forth uh, his argument, if you will, that this justification, justification being the ability to stand in God's court, um, to be uh, able to stand in his presence without the curse being exercised against us, the ability to be able to stand uh, actually in fellowship with God, that is something that happens by faith. Now, in verse 15, Paul continues that very argument, and he says to give a human example, brothers. Now, Let's pause right now because I think I've been speaking in so much abstraction. It's probably a good time right now for our brains just to pause for a moment. And notice the word brothers there. Um, Paul's addressing the Galatians as brothers. And if you have an ESV open, there's a footnote. should be a footnote after brothers. You look down at the margin and it says brothers and sisters. So brothers and sisters. Um, Notice the tone. We've been talking about Uh, Paul's tone all the way back in verse 1. He used a pretty uh, brash tone, oh foolish Galatians. And we we took a few minutes uh, in an earlier message to talk about that, didn't we? Uh, You know, someone might say, that sounds kind of scathing. Yeah, it's very scathing. But I think we should, if we're going to talk about that, we should also talk about verse 15, where Paul's using the words of endearment as well. You know, brothers and sisters. You know, and we need to add that into the tale as we're thinking about this tone. It doesn't stay scathing. It is scathing, but it doesn't stay that way. He says to give a human example, brothers and sisters. Now, this human example he is going to give, that phrase right there, to give a human example, 
Richard Longnecker is pretty helpful here. Uh, He kind of paraphrases that with the words, let me take an example from everyday life. Because that's what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. He says to give a human example, or let's take an example from everyday life. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I know some of you are collecting commentaries. I know you're collecting these because once in a while you come to me and you'll say, "Uh, can you recommend a commentary for this book? Or can you recommend a commentary for that book? Um, And as you... Uh, you know, as you begin to look at these commentaries, especially uh, modern commentaries, and you're going you're gonna to encounter a lot of what we call modern scholarship that is actually in many ways hostile to the Scriptures. You know, the commentaries I'm going to recommend to you are going to be, con- they're going to be conservative commentaries that are faithful to the text. Uh, but the, the ones that are more academic are going to be dealing with many of these modern scholars uh, who are raising um, various um, things against the, uh, the Scriptures. And I just want to prepare you for that. Verse 15 here, there's a lot of folks that will just nitpick. And I think that's the best term to use is to nitpick. Notice Paul's example. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, Paul's point here is really, really simple. But a, a lot of times when you get into some of these commentaries, uh, you'll, you'll find they're saying, well, it's difficult to say what kind of law Paul means. Does Paul mean Greek law? Does he mean Roman law? Does he mean Jewish law? And for that matter, uh, these ancient man-made covenants could be broken. So what is Paul even talking about? And it's almost like, like, don't you have anything to say that you're going to start saying, well, this stuff? I mean... Obviously, uh, Paul's point here is really, really simple. And in terms of what law Jesus or uh, Paul is speaking of here, I don't really think that's the point, but I think the context suggests, with all of these Old Testament references and allusions, I think it's pretty safe for us to reason that the man-made covenants that Paul has in mind are the ones we find in Scripture. There's a lot of them. You know, for example, we have a covenant that Abraham makes with Ahimelech. You have a covenant that uh, Jacob makes with Laban. And maybe more famously, you have the covenant that, that David makes with Jonathan. You have that covenant. Now, these are man-made covenants. These are covenants that men are making with other men. They're covenants that are just made on the human level, if you will. And Paul's, Paul's point here is simple enough. Um, even today, I mean... When we want to do something, we want to make an agreement, and we want that agreement to be legal and binding, what do we do? We enter into a contract with someone, right? Now, can those contracts be broken? Yeah, they're broken every day. Uh, Some of the loopholes and some of the things that are used to break those contracts are quite sleazy, but it still happens. Um, But that's not the point. Why do you want a contract? Because generally speaking, contract binds you to the agreement, right? That's why we still make the contract. You know, here in a couple of months, Cody and Peyton are going to be getting married, and they're going to be making an agreement with one another, right? That's just another example of these covenants that we make, the covenant of marriage, if you will. And what is, you know, what is Paul's point here? He says to give a human example, or if to use Richard Longnecker's words, to take an example from everyday life, 
He says, no, you know, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You know, lawfulness, that's what, you know, nobody does that. No one takes it away, no one adds to it. Now, there's a lesser to greater argument going on here. If it's this way with man-made covenants, how much more so would it be with a God-made covenant? Especially as we think about the covenant that Paul has in mind. What covenant does Paul have in mind? Verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. And notice that promises and covenant are in parallel with each other. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises. You see the parallel structure there? Promises and the covenant are in parallel with each other. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So far, so good, right? Everybody okay? Referring to, uh, uh, let me back up. Were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Let me read that again because I botched it up the first time. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, has anyone ever read that before and scratched your head? Um, is anybody like me? You read that and you scratch your head. And whereas verse 15, I think, is often nitpicked by a lot of modern scholarship, verse 16 is ridiculed by it. Um, as you read the commentaries, um, you'll find that there's a lot of um, skeptical scholars out there that just blatantly ridicule these verses. And I always cringe when I read that stuff because I think to myself, the Apostle Paul was a man of a towering intellect. I mean, you read these letters. Granted, he is, he's writing under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, he was a man of towering intellect. And you have these modern scholars that are ridiculing someone who's probably twice as smart as they are. Um, it's, it's, it, it should be humbling, actually. And what are they typically, what are they typically um, ridiculing? This play that the Apostle Paul is doing with the word offspring. First of all, who would write offsprings? You know, you're, you, you, you write your paper, you turn it into your English teacher, and you wrote offsprings several times in your paper. Okay, when you get it back from your English teacher, it's not going to be surprising to find some red ink, perhaps a circle around the S every time offsprings appears, right? I'm not an English teacher, but I'm going to guess that's going to be the case when you get your paper back. And of course, this, and so, and so the, um, So the ridicule begins. What kind of argument is this? Everybody knows that offspring is a collective singular. It's kind of like the word seed, and it's related to the word seed, by the the way. You know, you dig up your yard, you fill in the hole, you rake it, you get it all smoothed out, and then what do you do after that? You plant seeds, or you could say you're planting seed. You go to the store, typically, you want to buy some grass seed, you you go to the um, the uh, store and you say, "Listen, I'd like to I'd like to purchase some grass 
seed. Now, what do they do? Do they bring one little seed and set it on the counter and say that'll be so much? Um, no, you typically buy that by the pound, don't you? Um, and nobody's going to count them. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever asked for a count. That would be kind of funny to do sometime. But I don't think they're going to count them for you. Uh, but the whole point here is the word seed is used, whether it's a single seed or it's used as a plural. Offspring is the same way. We're thinking fictitiously of Jimmy and Susie. Jimmy and Susie um, have children. Uh, whether they have one child or whether they have 10 children, we could refer to that single child or those 10 children as their what? Their offspring, right? So what is Paul doing here? He's, he's playing on this and... Um, a lot of times we think, wait a second. Now, Paul says, Paul says here that it does not say to offsprings, plural. And you have to think to yourself, you know, there are a lot of contexts where it does seem to be talking about plural. So what exactly is Paul talking about here? Well, rather than ridiculing him, why don't we, why don't we strive to see just what he is talking about? And I think as we do that, we're going to find something quite fascinating, what Paul's doing. He's taking us through the history of salvation is what he's doing. And if we start all the way back in Genesis 3, and I would ask you to turn there. Uh, if you're using the church's Bible, the passage is found in verse 3 that we're going to, or is found in page 3 that we're going to be looking at here. It's verse 15. Some of you are very familiar with this verse. Now, Adam and Eve have just rebelled against God, and they have fell, they've fallen, and God has approached them, and now he is uh, speaking to Satan himself in verse 14. He says to Satan, because you have done this, what has he done? He has led Adam and Eve, he has tempted them and led them in the rebellion against God. And he says to Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, notice verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay? Now, let's think about this for a minute. We've got Paul. Galatians 3.15 in the back, or 16 rather, in the back of our minds here. We're thinking about offsprings. We're thinking about offspring. Okay, what exactly is in view here? Let's read it again. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, we get a clue in the next line. He, singular, right? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, again, singular, his heel. So what we're seeing here, ultimately, is offspring here is being used in the singular, isn't it? Just as Paul says in Genesis 3, verse 16. Of course, a lot of times when we read this, we might be thinking about plural, especially when we think about the idea of enmity being between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, are we right to do that? Yes, we're right to do that. 
House comes in. House comes in. I haven't used that in a while. I've been waiting for an opportunity. Keep your hand in Genesis 3 and turn all the way to the other end of the Bible to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, page 1035, if you're using the Bible that's on or near your seat. Actually, we're going to start on page 1034 at the very bottom in verse 7. Revelation 12, verse 7. We're told there that war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Verse 9, that ancient serpent who is called what? The devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. If you skip down to verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. That's offspring singular, right? Following me? But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the what? The rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Boy, we learn so much in that verse, don't we? Who is the offspring of the woman? Well, we learn from this verse, it's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We also learn that in that sense, offspring is plural. You know, when I went to seminary, I got to be really good friends with a fella. We're the same age, and both of us had, had followed, I had followed an engineering track initially when I was right out of school. I was going to be an electronic engineer. And um, he actually... Uh, did he finished up his? Uh, he was the good student. He actually finished up and uh, became an engineer, and he worked as a mechanical engineer for a lot of years. So we had so much in common. Both of us had kind of a little bit of an engineering mind going on. And um, but as we began to study matters of theology, you know, sometimes you get questions asked. You know, is offspring singular or is offspring plural? And an engineer is waiting for a yes or a no. You know, when you're designing a bridge, well, this girder hole, what's the tensile strength of this girder? It's so much. I mean, the answer is something plus or minus something. It's not yes or no. I mean, will this, will this girder hold this truck? It's, it's not yes and no together. But when you're studying theology, is offspring singular? Yes. Is offspring plural? Yes. And my friend used to just go nuts over that. He was just... You know, he had, I had worked largely as a technician all those years, but he had worked as an engineer and his just like 20 years of working as an engineer, he just so struggled. He's like, this is driving me crazy. Um, in one sense, back to Genesis chapter three, uh, and in the most, I'd say the most significant sense, offspring is singular. It doesn't say offsprings. 
Now, someone will say, well, Rick, you're clear back, so you're clear back in Genesis 3. The context of Galatians 3 is Abraham. Okay, let's go to Abraham. Go to Genesis 12. Because we're going to see the same principle. We're going to see the same principle taking place again. Genesis 12, page 8, the very bottom. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Now a great nation is what? That's going to be lots of people, right? That's lots of offspring. That's offsprings, isn't it? Right? Our minds are kind of, okay, our minds, great nation, offsprings. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went out as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Iran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your what? Offspring, I will give this land. Now, I think a lot of times when we're reading these passages, because we've already encountered this idea of a great nation, their minds are set on plural. And perhaps in those moments, we read offspring in the plural when we come to that, uh, to verse, uh, what is it, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. But let's think about it for a moment. Abram had a number of children. You know, at this point in time in salvation history, Abraham, Abraham has not had any children yet. His wife, Sarah, has not been able to conceive. But we know as you continue to read the narrative that at one point, because there's a long delay between God's promise of Sarai conceiving and having a child, uh, because there's a delay in God's fulfillment of that promise, they, they take things and matters into their own hands, don't they? And what does Abram do? He did something that was lawful in that day. It's something that sounds just horrendous to us today. It, we need to understand it was lawful during that time. Uh, he, he, his wife gave to Abraham her servant so that he could marry her and have children through her that his name could be propagated. Now, some of us, especially if you're not familiar with that custom, thinking to yourself, oh, oh, yeah, to our ears, but it was something that was lawful uh, during that time in terms of, you know, it was, it was, it was civically lawful. Um, certainly, not, it's not something that God had commanded them to do. What, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to wait for the promise. But here's my point. I don't want to get uh, messed up in the morality of what took place there. My point is, Abraham has a son to Hagar. Now, is that son to Hagar the one who inherits this land? The answer is no. And furthermore, okay, afterwards, when Sarah's 90 years old, she finally gives birth to Isaac, to Isaac. And we learn, and we're going to see this over, over again as we study through uh, Galatians, that Isaac is the child of promise, right? Now, after Sarah dies, Abraham marries again. 
and he has more children. And if you continue to read the testimony, and we're told that he had concubines and he had children to them. You know, the, a lot of times we, we try to make this, we try to take the mess out of all of this. But when you read it, this stuff is messy, isn't it? It's really messy. You know, read Esther if you want to see how messy some of this can get. Esther is quite messy, the book of Esther. Um, this is messy. Life is messy. Uh, my point here is when you read the narrative of Abraham having these other children to his second, well, be his third wife, all these other children, he keeps those children away from Isaac because Isaac is the child of promise. Now, here's the point. When we look at verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. It's singular. I think it has to be singular, doesn't it? So Paul could say it doesn't say offsprings. Now, this might sound really tedious to us, um, but I think it's an important principle for us to get. Isaac is the promised offspring singular. Isaac is the one that the covenant promises are given to. And furthermore, Isaac has children, right? And Jacob becomes the singular offspring, if you will, that, those, that the covenant promises are given to. Then Jacob has children, right? And Judah is the one, actually, in terms of Genesis 3.15, he is the singular one to whom this promise is given to. And as we continue to follow this down, we eventually get to David. And that's why we read from Psalm 89 this morning. David, in, in Psalm 89, the co God's covenant with David is, is celebrated, right? Because God has chosen David to make him king, and he has promised that David will have a son, singular, who will occupy his throne forever. One son. One son. Now, there are times when we read the narrative where the son that's in view, where David is concerned, is Solomon, right? And, of course, this promise continues with Solomon, and then Jeroboam, and then down you go the list. But ultimately, who is this speaking of? It's pointing to Jesus. And that's why we read from the genealogy of Matthew. Now you're starting to see why would the New Testament begin with a genealogy? I think we can see why. Because Jesus is not only a son of David, offspring singular. He's the son of Abraham, offspring singular. And we can even go further back than that. He is the one promised in the garden. The one who will defeat Satan. Now, let's just stand back for a minute. I know this is a hard... This is, I'm thinking about how to explain this. I know there's a lot of moving parts here. But let's just stand back for a moment and let's think this through for a minute. Here we see the basic gospel message being proclaimed in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, just mentioning a few places. We could go to many, many more, but what do we find out? We find the gospel being preached all the way through the Old Testament, don't we? And of course, back to Galatians 3. Let's go back to Galatians 3. 
That is where we started, and we might have forgotten where we started by now, I'm not sure. But we did start in Genesis 3. And if you look at verse 16, Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is what? Who is who? He is Christ. Now, if you look at verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years, 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is Paul talking about here? I think his opponents would have agreed with everything in verse 16. Those that are stirring the trouble, I think they would have embraced verse 16. I think they would have read the Scriptures that way. We have evidence that this was a common Jewish interpretation method, actually. This is not something out of the blue that Paul's using. You know, some of the modern skeptics of the Scriptures would find this to be a little bit strange, and they read that strangeness back in to the history, but the history is really clear that a lot of ancient rabbis interpreted the Scriptures this way. They're very clear about that. We got some clear examples of that. Again, if you go to uh, commentaries such as Douglas Moo, who does a really outstanding job uh, with Galatians currently in terms of technical commentaries, if you're wanting to get a technical commentary on Galatians, that one's my favorite. Richard Longnecker is also a very, very good one. Um, They'll point this out, that this wouldn't have raised an eyebrow with the ancient Jewish rabbis. It wouldn't have raised an eyebrow at all. Uh, So I don't think there would have been disagreement with verse 16, but verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is Paul saying? Well, he's countering their objections because in their mind, and this gets really, really complicated, but in their mind, what they're seeing is the promises made to Abraham, okay, Here come the promises made to Abraham. And then in addition, I'll try to simplify this just a little bit. In addition to these promises made to Abraham, here comes a plus sign. And there is the law of Moses. Okay? Therefore, to be fully in Christ... You are to embrace Christ with faith, right? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, according to these agitators. Plus, you remember that plus sign we've been talking about so much? Plus, you need to observe the Mosaic law. Now, the problem with that is performance and promise, they're at odds with one another. They're at the same odds as gift and wage. You know, we're starting a new week. Tomorrow, you know, or this afternoon or whenever your, your, your schedule starts, you're going to begin working for your employer. And you've agreed to work for a certain wage and say your payday is Friday. When Friday comes, your employer, your employer, if you're... If, if he or she pays you the agreed amount, there, it's not a gift. 
In fact, it would be a strange, maybe even insulting thing if they said to you, well, here's your gift. What would you be expecting if, if they said to you, here's your gift? What would you be expecting in the envelope? Anyone. A little extra, wouldn't you? And you open it up and you say, well, it's the, it's the same amount it was last week. What do you, wouldn't you find that a little insulting? Oh, oh, by the way, here's your gift. Oh, what is that? Oh, it, it, it's your paycheck. It's, it's your gift. Gift? It's not a gift. If there's extra in it, that's a different story. But you see the tension between gift and wage. Whereas midweek, if your employer says, you know something, you've just done such an outstanding job. And I just want you to know that I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do for me and everything. And I just, you know, I stopped by um, Giant Eagle and I just got a gift card. Here's a gift card for the Olive Garden. You know, go out to dinner. Now that's a gift. But in the case of our salvation, (laughs) in the case of our salvation, it goes like this. What have we done? We have committed crimes against the Lord every day of our lives. And what does God come and do? Gives us a gift. The gift of salvation. We can't possibly earn that. We can't possibly earn that. And inside the envelope is a whole bunch of grace. We could put it this way. Inside the envelope is a treasure chest of spiritual blessings. And every single one of those blessings are in Christ. Amen? I think it's a good place to stop. Next week, next week, Paul asks the question, why then the law? <laughs> and some of us are laughing. Uh, it's a very, that's next week's problem. How's that sound? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord. And we do say with Peter, Paul writes things that are difficult to understand. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand these things for as, as we begin to understand these things, Father, it really is truly liberating. And we confess, Father, there are things in this chapter that we, we might not understand in this life, not fully. But, Father, the things that we need to have, the things that we need to understand are clear enough. And we thank you for that clarity. And, Father, we pray that you would continue, continue, O oh Father, to work in our hearts. Continue, O oh Father, to give us clarity of these great truths. There's nothing we can do to earn this salvation, nothing that we can do to earn this justification, but it is a free gift. And the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not trump the gift that you gave to Abraham. Abraham was following after other gods, and you came to him. You made him these promises. He believed you, and it was counted as righteousness. And the law, which comes 430 years after, does not trump those promises. We thank you, O Father, that that is the case. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.